Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm Christopher Kinsinger. Over the next several weeks on the podcast, we'll be airing special encore presentations of the panels that were hosted at our National Law and Freedom Conference in Toronto earlier this year. Today's episode showcases our panel on the state of academic freedom in Canada, featuring professors Jamie Cameron, Faisal Baba, Finn McCalla, and lawyer Derek Ross, moderated by Aaron Woodrick. So it's my pleasure now to introduce our moderator for today's panel. Many of you know him well. It's Aaron Woodrick, who is a lawyer and the director of the McDonald Laurier Institute's domestic policy program. Aaron is a graduate of the University of Waterloo, which is also my alma mater in economics and political science, as well as the University of Western Ontario in law, where I believe he was actually a, a classmate of one of our other panelists, Derek Ross. Eric practiced litigation in his native Kitchener, Ontario, and then corporate law with a major international law firm in London, Hong Kong, and Abu Dubai before he returned to Canada to work as a political consultant and a lobbyist. Prior to, majority, prior to joining MLI, he spent six years as a national spokesperson for a prominent non-profit advocacy group. He currently lives in Ottawa. Please, everyone, do me the honor of welcoming Aaron and the rest of our panel. Thanks so much for that, Chris, and great to be back here. Great to be in person uh, without the masks or the uh, the shields. We had the shields last year, do you remember? Um, which I thought was a little bit uh, a little bit much, but rules are rules, and I'm glad that we are uh, back to something something Oops. resembling uh, normal again. Um, thanks again, Chris, for the invitation uh, to moderate what I think is a like very uh, eminent panel, and it's certainly a topic that's of uh, great interest uh, to the McDonald Laurier Institute. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, each of them very briefly in a moment. They have a far more um, eminent uh, bio in the uh, in the program, um, and I'm going to. Uh, they're each going to start, come up here, and, and give some opening remarks. Um, I've then got some follow-up questions to put to the panel, and then we'll get to the fun part, which of course is uh, uh, questions from the audience. So. Um, we have, starting here on my uh, immediate right, oh, first I should mention, we were supposed to have a fifth panelist, Dax Ferrazio at Queen's University. Uh, we were really looking forward to having him, but unfortunately got called away at the last minute uh, due to a family emergency. So, uh, starting here to my right, we have Jamie Cameron, who's Professor Emerita at Osgood Hall. We have Professor Faisal Baba, Associate Professor at Osgood Hall. We have Finn Makala, Professor of Law at the uh, University of Sherbrooke. And last but not least, Derek Ross, the Executive Director and General Counsel for Christian Legal Fellowship, and perhaps more importantly, fellow Western Law alumni from the class of 2007. Um, and with that, I'll turn it over to you, Jamie. Thank you very much, Aaron, and a good morning to everyone. Uh, I'd like to just begin by congratulating Chris on his, uh, I think it's the second um, uh, annual conference, so congratulations, Chris. Uh, thank you for this panel, and uh, thank you for inviting me to be a participant on this panel. So we're asked to give just sort of a very quick little introductory comment, and so that's what I'm gonna try to do. And so, um, as you may be aware, academic freedom issues abound, they're ubiquitous, they're almost daily, they can be highly divisive, they can be very inflammatory as well, and they can often have high visibility. Um, some of the more controversial incidents concern extracurricular interventions by academic staff. Um, and so uh, the I'm gonna try and do two things quite quickly here this morning. The first, I wanna talk about extracurricular, um, extracurricular expression and whether it is part of academic freedom or at least raise that issue for consideration and the second thing I want to do is very, very quickly is just add a little backdrop uh, to discussion we'll be having in this panel and this afternoon about Quebec's Bill 32. Um, and so to move on, um, extracurricular expression. So there's considerable confusion in this area and a lot of it has to do with the First Amendment and how the First Amendment works in the United States. Um, but the relationship between expressive freedom and academic freedom is sort of an ongoing issue. And I guess I just want to say that to me, it seems um, to be needlessly overcomplicated and that it's actually fairly simple. 
um, and the simple view is that expressive and academic freedom are actually indivisible. And so that means that expressive freedom is included in academic freedom and also that academic freedom protects expressive freedom uh, outside the university or the college and whether the expressive activity is related to academic expertise or not. That, I'm going to say, is practically irrelevant. Um, okay, so it's well known that academic staff can have controversial, if not outrageous, points of view. And there's no reason to think that those would be limited to the confines of a college or university campus. Um, but when these views surface outside the university, this can frequently generate pressure um, on the college or university and demands for consequences in the form of demands for suspension, reprimands, termination, those kinds of things. Um, and it's, it's interesting that it's not the Charter or the First Amendment that protects academic staff in these circumstances. It might, depending on the uh, legal structure of the university, but more to the point, it's academic freedom that protects academic staff when they're participating in public discourse. Um, I'm not going to get into this, but it would frequently do so under the terms of a collective agreement, which is very typical in Canada, less so in the United States. But anyway, to come back to the point, uh, the status of extracurricular expressive activity for academic staff is one of academic freedom's most important and most contested functions. So very quickly then, why would academic freedom protect a fac faculty member's public statements on any subject whatsoever? Why would this be included in academic freedom? Three principal reasons. The first one is you can't have a double standard between the internal status or the status of academic freedom uh, on uh, uh, college and university campuses and the status of academic freedom outside the campus. Um, I didn't say that well, but uh, you get the point that uh, it, it can't be right that a person has the right under academic freedom to criticize the administration while they're on campus, but once they talk to a local newspaper, uh, their uh, academic freedom is terminated and they become subject to, uh, to consequences by the employer. Similarly, um, if academic staff might have controversial views about their subject matter or about teaching or about anything under the sun that they're free to, um, they're free to express on campus, but once they go off campus and put it into uh, the public domain, uh, it can't be right that they are all of a sudden subject to uh, repercussions and consequences at the behest of the, um, the employer. That would make academic freedom uh, both incoherent and completely precarious. That's the first reason. Second reason is that, um, and it's related, uh, the, internal, uh, the internal work of academic staff is not safe when academic staff has to watch what they say outside the college or university um, in the public domain. And uh, the risk of a chill is two-way. Um, uh, not only is extramural activity uh, deterred and chilled in those circumstances, but so is the intramural activity. And you don't want to have the risk that the university will use the uh, will use the uh, will use an extracurricular intervention as a reason to take uh, to to uh, to impose consequences on an individual who is controversial on campus, and they sort of want to get rid of that person. I put that a bit bluntly, but you get the point. Um, so uh, the third reason is that uh, robust protection protection for extramural expression serves the university's broader purposes of adding value to social, political, and, um, and uh, cultural <coughs> discourse uh, through the engagement of its academic staff in public discourse. So uh, more generally, extracurricular activity by academic staff uh, serves, reinforces, and promotes uh, the highest purposes of our institutions of higher learning. I'm just going to close this point with 
one example. It's not really an instance of um, academic freedom per se, because the issue is professional oversight. But I'm just kind of reminded that it raises the same sort of question when we look at uh, the disciplinary action that has been taken against Jordan Peterson by the um, College of Psychologists. Um, and it's the same sort of issue. Uh, just very briefly, we have to also look at the question of limits. Uh, the limit on academic freedom in the context of extracurricular activity is fitness for office. Fitness for office. So, um, it, to the extent that academic staff is engaged in extracurricular expressive activity that makes them unfit for office, unfit to discharge the duties of their academic duties, then it's at that point that academic freedom will not protect uh, them. And just um, one little point to make about that also is that when that point is reached must be determined through um, a peer-led process. It's not something that the university should be deciding without it being uh, a, a process that's led, that's led by peers, excuse me. Second point, sorry, I'm trying to be brief. Second point, so I'm gonna leave that and just turn to my second point because I, I really wanna say this and I'll be very short. I just wanna um, add a little reminder that um, Quebec's Bill 32 was predated by directives by both Ontario and province to their colleges and universities that required all colleges and universities in both provinces to file free speech policies and to provide an annual report to the province. In the case of Ontario, any college or university that was not compliant with the province's directive was subject, was, the province said that they would be subject to immediate budget repercussions. So there was a threat that was attached to the directive from the province of Ontario. And so I'll, I'll leave it there because others are going to deal further with these issues, but I just raised the question, and I think it won't be difficult to tell my point of view here, uh, where you have a compulsory uh, state freedom policy, uh, is that really about freedom? Uh, can you, is, is that sort of a contradiction in terms to have uh, a state policy that compels a particular conception of freedom and imposes it on colleges and, free, and universities? Thank you very much. Look forward to the questions later. Uh, thank you uh, to the organizers for uh, the invitation uh, to be here. I'm uh, going to say a few words about freedom of expression and discrimination. And like uh, Jamie, I want to uh, suggest that freedom of expression academic freedom and discrimination are not at odds and are actually mutually reinforcing. It is true uh, that universities do have a duty to take discrimination seriously, which means uh, receiving complaints, investigating uh, complaints uh, regarding conduct on campus, even regarding con conduct off campus, online, uh, as long as there can be shown a nexus between the conduct or the speech and campus. Uh, taking complaints of discrimination seriously often leads to high-handed and, in my opinion, misguided responses by the university. Uh, this is driven to a large extent by fear of reputational harm, which leads to what appears to be an emerging default reaction when allegations are made that expression has caused harm and that is to target the expression. Uh, university leaders uh, do not, uh, in my opinion, have a great record uh, of standing up for academic freedom in the face of such uh, reputational uh, concerns uh, when there is public pressure to censor. Uh, the latest case in point, uh, we can see it in the, in the case of Hamline College in Minnesota, which in the course of a week, uh, uh, reacted to a Muslim student's anguish over viewing uh, an image of the Prophet Muhammad in class. Uh, the university decided to not renew the contract instructor's teaching contract and made a public statement uh, condemning the instructor's impudence for showing the image uh, and making a bold statement that sometimes um, 
the comfort level of students needs to supersede academic freedom. Within uh, days, just a few days of that decision being made, uh, the university was already forced to walk it back as uh, perspectives from all across uh, the spectrum, uh, including from Muslim communities, were uh, calling the university out for uh, a, a, a wrong decision. Um, but what that, what that episode shows is the extent to which universities are concerned with reputational impact, the extent to which universities uh, understand their reputation to be tied to existential questions. Hamline College uh, is a small liberal arts uh, college in Minnesota that uh, depends entirely on student tuition uh, to survive, like, like most small li private liberal arts colleges in the States. Uh, and if that college is seeking to attract a particular kind of student or a, 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 to, to fit itself into a particular brand or image, which all universities are concerned with these days, um, uh, reputational concerns will be everything. Uh, but, the, but the reality, though, is to fulfill the academic mission uh, requires discomfort. Discomfort is part of the price of a good education. Student discomfort, that is. Uh, so um, there is just cause to be worried about the fact that in an effort to be seen to be fighting discrimination, protecting community safety, or building a culture of inclusion, universities end up undermining their own purpose for short-term gain by canceling some forms of expression and viewpoints based on the discomfort of some. Um, and this is a problem uh, because uh, discomfort is produced uh, by viewpoint diversity. You don't have discomfort if you don't have viewpoint, or you don't have this kind of discomfort if you don't have viewpoint diversity. Uh, and universities have long understood that featuring a wide diversity of viewpoints on campus is not only valid, but necessary to fulfill the university's function. Learning about different viewpoints advances knowledge and sometimes requires the learner to be exposed to challenging concepts and to experience discomfort. The problem is when healthy discomfort is mistaken for discriminatory impact, this can cause individuals, understandably, to turn to campus policies, which exist to protect against discrimination, to seek outcomes from the university that amount to censorship or that produce uh, a chill uh, going forward because it rises the cost of expression. And this, I think, is what we uh, see on campuses. And when universities do that, uh, they risk their very mission. Um, I've done some research to look into the law of discrimination, and what I have found is that universities have no requirement in law to do this. Uh, cases on discrimination uh, from the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, as well as by labor arbitrators, have shown uh, across the board that there's a bright line between the expression of ideas in an academic setting uh, and the expression of, discriminatory, of, of, disc of discrimination. And, and the tribunal has ruled uh, in case after case, and I'm happy to speak more about uh, some of the facts of those cases, um, that th the human rights code, that the law of discrimination does not apply to the expression of, of an idea in the context of an academic setting. And so it leaves us with uh, the troubling question of why do universities censor and suppress speech if not required to by the law? Um, and that leaves us with uh, so, social, political, and economic conditions uh, to unpack. But I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that, at, at that for now. Thank you. So I'm going to exercise my academic freedom to <laughs> disregard the rules and stay seated and maybe say something outrageous. Um, uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the, policy, the, the political and policy process that led to the adoption of Bill 32 in Quebec, because uh, it's the first uh, legislation that I'm aware of in North America and maybe in the world that specifically protects academic freedom. Uh, so I sit on the uh, Permanent Commission on Academic Freedom at the uh, Federation of Quebec Professors. just want to make clear that the opinions here are my own and not the, the opinions of the, the Federation, because I sometimes disagree with some of my colleagues, although we ag agree on a lot. Uh, so the Federation has proposed since 1997, when uh, UNESCO uh, released its statement on academic freedom, that there ought to be legislative protection for academic freedom in Quebec. And in 2020, uh, the Federation proposed a model law to the chief scientist after there was uh, consultations about the, the future of education in, in Quebec. And there was 
quite a bit of internal debate for the reasons that, that Jamie set out, uh, whether or not we wanted a law at all. Uh, historically, uh, the way that university professors have protected their academic freedom is through self-help. Like this is the, the, the way that the uh, American Association of University Professors uh, uh, cashed out academic freedom in, uh, in the 20th century. Uh, the CAUT, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, has done the same thing, and it was basically naming and shaming uh, with censure of, uh, of institutions that violated academic freedom. Uh, and then parallel to that, uh, also as Jamie mentioned, Collective agreements in Canada, or most universities in Canada, professors are, are unionized and so have a collective agreement. And they have language in the collective agreement that uh, governs academic freedom. So there was this concern that, well, if, if there's a law that's adopted, it'll create a floor, uh, but that floor might actually become a ceiling. Uh, and so the, the, the collective agreements that have broad, very generous language on academic freedom uh, might be brought down to the minimum level of protection that's provided in the law. So those are kind of some of the internal debates that were going on. Uh, and then it all kind of exploded uh, with the events that uh, many of you have probably heard at uh, uh, the University of Ottawa uh, in 2020, end of 2021, I believe, uh, where a sessional lecture was uh, essentially functionally relieved of her duties for having uh, used the N-word in one of her classes. And that that situation, it was a kind of a perfect storm because you have University of Ottawa, which is a bilingual institution. There was a distinction in the, the, the approach between the Francophone Quebecers and the Anglophone Quebecers. And there was what was described by uh, uh, François Dupuy-Derry, who's a sociologist at uh, UCAM, uh, a kind of a moral panic in Quebec, uh, referring to Stanley Cohen's notion of moral panics, uh, that woke students were... Uh, uh, forcing professors to, to silence themselves. And in, in order to understand this, you kind of need to know how the current Quebec government uh, sees questions of uh, discrimination. And the debates in the National Assembly had our uh, premier accusing uh, the leader of the Social Democratic Party uh, of being woke. So woke has become a, a kind of an epithet uh, in Quebec. Uh, and it's related to uh, a current tendency for the last 15 years or so to see uh, any uh, English-Canadian uh, approaches to multiculturalism as being uh, antithetical to the Quebec national project. So there's this uh, a commission that's created in order to decide, okay, how are we going to respond to these, these questions of academic freedom? Uh, and note that here, teaching, is basically what is academic freedom is reduced to in the public discourse. There's very little discussion about uh, academic freedom in research. So there's this narrative, uh, the, there's a, a, a report that comes out, uh, the commission says, counsels the government that a policy statement or a directive isn't sufficient, so they don't follow the, the, the Ontario model, but that it requires a law. Uh, and then, of course, the, the normal legislative process happened, uh, reminding me of uh, what was attributed to Bismarck, rightly or not, which is, is that laws are like sausages and it's best not to see how they're made. Uh, so we participated in that, and the, the ultimate uh, response was the creation of Bill 32, uh, which sets out a definition of academic freedom, which I think uh, bears reading. So it is, the right of, to university academic freedom is the right of every person to engage freely and without doctrinal, ideological, or moral constraint, such as institutional censorship, in an activity through which the person contributes to carrying out the mission of an educational institution. That right includes the person's freedom to teach and discuss, to research, create, and publish, to express their opinion about society and about an institution, including their own institution, and about any doctrine, dogma, or opinion, and to freely take part in the activities of professional organizations or academic organizations. And then, still in the same section, it must be exercised in accordance with the standards of ethics and scientific rigor generally recognized by the university sector and taking into account the rights of the other members of the university community. Um, so a couple things about this definition. First, note that uh, it applies to everybody. It, it doesn't say the right of professors. It says the right to every per of every person who participates to uh, the carrying out of the university mission. So that's going to include students will have a right to academic freedom, and then there's a whole bunch of questions that can flow from that. Uh, it also includes, ev uh, evidently, 
uh, sessional lectures, but also invited lecture or invited speakers and so forth. Uh, contrary to the UNESCO statement of 1997, uh, collegial governance, which is typically understood to be a, a, a core component of academic freedom, is not included in the law. And then finally, it has this internal li limit to the right in the definition itself, that is standards of ethics, scientific rigor, and the rights of other members of the university community. So, Couple remarks going forward as to what maybe some of the results of this are going to be. Uh, first, universities are required under the Act to adopt uh, a policy on academic freedom, uh, and th they need to be adopted and filed with the minister by this upcoming June. Uh, so one of the concerns is, is that they're required to have a complaints process. And it was fairly clear during the Parliamentary con Commission that the complaints process was a uh, a bone that was thrown to student associations who wanted to be able to continue to, to complain about their professors' uh, egregious use of uh, terminology, to, to come back to your point, that was going to cause them discomfort. And so there's a concern that uh, the complaints process is actually going to be uh, a mechanism for people to complain about the abuse of academic freedom rather than the complaint of somebody whose academic freedom has been violated by the institution. So that's one thing that uh, we're keeping an eye on. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, universities have taken the, the, the position, it seems, that given that they're required to adopt a specific policy, that they don't have to look at all of their other policies to see if they're in conformity with academic freedom. Uh, and our position at the Federation has been, well, now there's a law that requires uh, universities to respect academic freedom. That means not just one particular policy, but the entire constellation of policies, directives, practices, and so forth need to be in conformity with the law. Um, second, uh, the internal limits on academic freedom uh, in the Act may be used by universities to restrict or deny academic freedom. Uh, so we've seen this uh, in, in the case of research ethics boards. Uh, which have been engaging in massive overreach, at least in some Quebec universities, uh, with overbroad interpretation of the Tri-Council policy statement on research ethics. And so this has been documented, for instance, a case at uh, uh, Quebec University where a study was denied ethics approval because it might be embarrassing for the university or for a corporate partner. And that was seen as uh, a potential harm uh, caused by the research. Uh, the second uh, concern of these internal limits is the overbroad uh, application of responsible research policies, uh, either by extending the scope to cover public statements, like extramural statements that aren't actually research, uh, or uh, by claiming that heterodox research methodologies don't re meet the Act's requirement of scientific rigor. And so this, this happened quite recently in a case uh, coming out of uh, Laval University. Uh, where a professor who was an expert in mRNA va vaccines participated in a citizen panel that was critical of uh, the pr province's decision or the public health authority's decision uh, to encourage vaccination of children under 12. Uh, and he was suspended without pay by the university as a disciplinary measure for uh, three months. Uh, so that's led to a complaint to the, the FQPPU and it's currently in litigation with the university. But interestingly, if you read the disciplinary report of the university, what they say is, well, in the, uh, the, the actual event happened before the act, but there's some reference to the, 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 uh, the concepts in the act. What they say is, well, what we're, uh, uh, what we're using as our grounds for disciplining the pro professor is, is that he's not uh, uh, engaging in scientific rigor. Uh, and so, therefore, they say, Black, black on white, well, therefore he's not exercising his academic freedom, and academic freedom has nothing to do with this uh, situation. So that's uh, obviously going to be problematic, and uh, we're keeping an eye on that going forward. Um, finally, uh, the question is the how the definition of the act will interact with collective agreements of professors, lecturers, and research staff. Uh, so the concern that was raised uh, internally has, in fact, uh, shown itself to be true. Uh, now universities, there's a current round of collective bargaining for many universities in Quebec right now. And anecdotally, uh, talking to colleagues, universities have been coming to the table and saying, we have this broad, expansive definition of academic freedom in our collective agreement. Uh, we don't want it anymore. We want the definition that's in the act, which is much more bare bones. Uh, second, 
because the act is what we call in, uh, in Quebec doctrine an act of public order, or, uh, an act that you can't derogate from by contract uh, or unilaterally, uh, probably uh, how the, the, the act gets interpreted is going to start with labor arbitrators uh, who are going to be the ones who are charged with interpreting the act in, in the first instance. Uh, finally, uh, it's likely that the act will be mobilized and uh, probably my, my colleague uh, Yves Gingras, who's going to be talking on the, the French panel on this subject, will uh, have something to say about that. Uh, it will be mobilized to, uh, either in litigation or symbolically, uh, to contest uh, EDI, uh, equity, diversity and inclusion requirements uh, in research funding or, for instance, in the nomination of uh, professors to specific research chairs in order to meet uh, uh, EDI requirements. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see how that cashes out too. Thanks. Well, good morning, everyone. And I just want to echo the thanks that have already been extended to the organizers of this conference and especially Chris Kinsinger, a fantastic event that you've organized. And I also want to thank all the students in this room. Um, for the work that you're doing on your law school campuses to cultivate uh, academic and legal and social discourse and promote viewpoint diversity. The stuff we're talking about on the panel is something you're doing on the ground, which is promoting expressive freedom. And it's important work and it's valued and want to thank you for that. And that's all I wanted to say. I think it's important to take a step back because we talk about it and we're talking about it already in terms of its tension with other interests, with public pressures. And what sometimes can be lost, maybe not for people in this room, but in our broader social dialogue is why is academic freedom important? What is its value? Why is it so important to protect it, especially in the face of what are perceived or presented as really compelling competing interests. So what is the purpose of academic freedom? And I think uh, if you look at most definitions of academic freedom, why it's been something that's been cherished as an institution uh, for much of, of Canadian history, it's this idea that at its core, academic freedom exists to preserve and promote the search for truth. The idea that we need to have space to challenge prevailing assumptions, majoritarian views, fashionable viewpoints, in order for us to really get a better understanding of the truth of things. Now, it doesn't mean that we will ever actually obtain truth, and we might even have a debate about the truth of truth itself. Does truth exist? But that is all part of this search for truth. It's often been said that today's truths were yesterday's heresies. So what are today's heresies that might be tomorrow's truths? As a society, we're ever growing, we're ever evolving, we're trying to get a better understanding of the universe around us, both on philosophical and existential questions, but also the, the here and now. Um, both the is of the universe and the ought of the universe. So in all these fields of academic study and endeavor, the university is really the space where we're supposed to have a buffer to really critically examine and engage in these questions, especially on matters that are controversial or that challenge prevailing viewpoints. So when we talk about academic freedom and about expressive freedom generally, it's important to remember that we really, I don't think, need those protections for uncontroversial ideas. It's really for the controversial ideas. When we're seeing these questions and discussions butting up against popular viewpoints, those more difficult issues, those are what require protection. And that's what the Supreme Court of Canada has said about freedom of expression generally. In a case called Zundel, the unanimous court said that the view of the majority has no need of constitutional protection. It is tolerated in any event. So academic freedom really, where it really becomes important, is precisely in these contested spaces, where it's challenging the viewpoint, when it's pitted against competing interests, including claims 
that the expressive freedom is harmful. That's really where expressive, uh, where academic freedom is going to do some work. And I, I, that's not to say that expression isn't harmful and that there shouldn't be reasonable limits on it. But at the outset, if we're sort of framing the whole discussion about expressive freedom as we protect it so long as it doesn't do X, Y, Z, I think we really need to critically examine those, those concepts. And I'm not just speaking hypothetically here. Um, Professor Cameron spoke about uh, in Ontario and Alberta, we have these legislative initiatives that require universities to adopt free speech policies. I don't know if you've looked at your university's free speech policy that's been adopted under the Act, uh, but it's really interesting to look at them. And I think some are more ro robust than others, but some of these policies do talk about how freedom of speech is protected on campus, but it kind of bookmarks the discussion uh, in between the need to promote our other values. And so I think that really raises the question of, and again, we might think those values are good things, unobjectionable things, and in theory have no problem with that idea. But I think whenever we start talking <laughs> about academic freedom needing to be balanced with or, or limited by competing values, it does raise the question of, well, who interprets what those values are? And is there a risk that that interpretation will ultimately lead to we'll only tolerate the type of speech that we like or that those in authority like. And I think that's a very dangerous uh, space to be. So when we face these challenges to academic freedom, I think we have to be careful about sort of viewing it as something that has to be weighed against the public interest. Because the public interest isn't the same thing as public opinion. Academic freedom is itself something that furthers the public interest in that it advances this notion of truth-seeking among other goods. So instead of viewing the public interest as sort of a counterweight on the scale that competes with academic freedom, conceptually I think we have to view academic freedom and expressive freedom on campus as conceptually being part of the public interest, that they often weigh on the same side of the scale, especially in these, these controversial issues. And the reason I say that is because dissenters at a university who are challenging prevailing ideas, they can often be accused of harming something. But they may be the ones, again, that are challenging things that need to be challenged. And we think about that as the purpose of the university more generally. Academic freedom isn't just for faculty, in my view. This is something that protects the truth-seeking mission of the university, and there's some important scholarship emerging on this. Uh, Professor Robert George at Princeton University recently gave a great lecture uh, at the University of British Columbia on the truth-seeking mission of the university. I commend that to you. Also, the work of Professor Brian Bird. But the Alberta Court of Appeal recently discussed this, this idea of, well, what is the purpose of the university? Is it just to train people and prepare them for the workforce? There's a deeper calling that the university has. And this is what the Alberta Court of Appeal recently said, that a university campus should be hospitable to a pursuit of the truth about all things without a pres prescribed predefinition of truth before the pursuit begins. The court took time to examine some of the underlying um, trusts, in that case involving the University of Alberta, of why this was established in the first place. And the court also took time to uh, look at the history of universities. It quoted a letter written by Thomas Jefferson uh, when he was establishing or involved in the establishment of the University of Virginia. And the, co the, the court quoted this excerpt. The university is to be based on the Ill illimitable freedom of the human mind. For here we are not afraid to follow truth wherever it may lead nor to tolerate any error so long as reason is left free to combat it. I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves about the state of our universities today is, are we prepared to tolerate errors so long as reason is free to combat it? And I think we need to think about uh, academic freedom as involving protection for 
not just faculty, but for students, student associations, uh, groups that are building communities that are themselves part of this collective search for truth that can act as sort of a cross-examining tool for some of our societal commitments. Because our ability to exercise freedom of expression, remember section 2B of the charter which guarantees freedom of expression actually guarantees three freedoms before it even mentions freedom of expression. Freedom of thought, freedom of belief, and freedom of opinion. Now those haven't generated a whole lot of attention as standalone freedoms in our jurisprudence. Uh, Professor Dwight Newman, who's here with us today, has done some really groundbreaking work on giving more um, con contemplation to this idea of freedom of thought. But that's what student groups are doing on campus. And so when we hear about groups that are facing objections or inability to organize, and we can talk about that, there's sort of been some mixed results in the case law. I think, again, there's something deeper going on there that requires some thoughtful and careful examination. So we can talk a little bit more about those things and about truth-seeking, um, but uh, those are my opening remarks and looking forward to our discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. Uh, what we're going to do now is um, I have uh, one question, follow-up question for each of the panelists. So I'll put it, I'll direct it at uh, the panelist. Uh, can you get the first crack at the response, and then I'll invite the rest of the panel to uh, weigh in. And then uh, once I'm through those, we'll uh, we'll turn to the audience for some questions. So maybe we'll go in reverse order this time, uh, starting with what's freshest in my mind, Derek. Um, you talked a lot about truth, and I, I love playing devil's advocate uh, in these uh, with these panels because I get to take positions, and it's a thought experiment for me. So what do you say to those, Derek, that maybe the purpose of a university is not just about seeking truth. Maybe universities, given their role in society, have a special responsibility. And so they have to weigh things other than uh, truth-seeking in the work that they do and should that not be a consideration when we're talking about academic freedom because if truths are harmful if there are truths that are painful and can cause damage to people is that not something that universities have a responsibility to bear in mind yeah well thanks for that question can is this mic on can everyone hear me okay okay excellent um, absolutely I'm not suggesting that this is sort of a tunnel vision thing and that this is the only consideration that universities need to bear in mind but it is a very significant core function of the university. And it's because the university is a really unique space that exists precisely to engage in this type of rigorous truth-seeking that perhaps limits on expression that might be appropriate in other contexts must be viewed through a different lens or different perspective at a university campus. Now, that's a lot to say. At the end of the day, universities are also communities. And these are spaces where people find um, important support, they find uh, and build relationships. These are homes for people, right? So these aren't necessarily these, um, you know, purely, purely clinical spaces where we're engaging in purely academic debate. This is a very real place um, with really real Im implications. And I also don't think we should discount that absolutely there are things um, that can and are said at universities that some of us might find um, not just deeply offensive, but even vilifying, stigmatizing, um, troubling things that, that people might even view as threatening um, the very support for existence of their identity. And that's important to, to not dismiss. I think sometimes when we talk about um, those that oppose speech, um, you know, it, it it's not that everyone that is opposing speech is just trying to shut speech down that they don't like. I think there are genuinely senses of uh, individuals that view speech really as posing an existential threat. And so how do we work through that? Uh, for those folks, the idea of truth-seeking might seem a very esoteric and academic justification for speech they view as very problematic. So a couple of things. Number one is that academic freedom, like expressive freedom, it's not a blank check. It doesn't mean that you can say willy-nilly whatever you want to say. Uh, we're not consumers of freedom. We're stewards of it. And we have to steward it responsibly. 
Uh, I think it was Lord Acton that talked about how freedom is not the freedom to do what we want so much as the right to do what we must. And so when we're talking about expressive freedom, we're talking about people that are also expressing things that is core to their identity, core to their expression, core to what they feel their conscience compels them to contribute to the social discourse. And so what we have here are actually two competing truth claims. One truth claim that says, your viewpoint is offensive to my very core, and another truth claim that says, this expression is absolutely necessary for us to move forward as a society on this issue. There will be tensions. That will be uncomfortable. That's inevitable. But we can't avoid that tension. We can't just say, we're going to shut this down or sweep it under a rug. And if we can't do it at a university, where we are supposed to come together as respectful, reasoned interlocutors who are dialoguing on something, then where else in society can we do it? So I think those are the issues that we really have to wrestle through. Just to add one little element, which is that there is an alternative or a competing conception of the university, uh, and, and that under that conception, the university is meant to be a safe place or a safe space for learning. Um, and so, uh, to the extent that uh, the university needs to be safer than the public domain. And so you end up with, uh, you, under that view, you end up with an, a more restricted view of expressive and academic freedom um, at the university than you might in the public domain. And that, in, for, for, uh, under that conception of a university, uh, which has a lot of support, quite frankly, under that conception of a university, um, the concept of harm is altered quite significantly. You know, it's a different conception of harm that uh, arises under a view of the university as a safe place for learning. You know, and the view there is that you can't learn unless you feel safe. So I just thought I'd put that into the mix. Thank you. So we've been talking a lot about uh, uh, ex expression. Uh, and I agree that academic freedom has, uh, as a core component, uh, freedom of expression. But in some ways, I think it's uh, uh, more analogous to freedom of the press in the sense that academic freedom requires a kind of institutional scaffolding in order to, 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 to fully flourish. Uh, and so one of the things that, uh, that we ask universities to do in Canada and then we also ask, uh, in, uh, ask them to do in other countries is to uh, advance government policy uh, by researching into specific subjects, uh, contributing to uh, uh, scientific and technological, economic growth, and so forth. Uh, and the question of research funding is a really, really uh, thorny one, uh, because it's quite possible that uh, you have heterodox views, you use uh, uh, different methodologies that are not mainstream, uh, and you're entirely able, uh, without constraint, to talk about them in any conference that you want and to teach them in your class. Uh, but if you're systematically refused research funding because you don't fit within the envelopes that are attributed this year to the, the, the goals of, of public policy, uh, then you're going to be missing out on that institutional scaffolding that's required to, for, for academic freedom to really flourish. And that's a really thorny issue because I think most academics recognize that there's a legitimate place for uh, uh, for oriented research funding. Uh, and it also raises the question of to what extent you can uh, waive your academic freedom. That is, if, for instance, I have a, a corporate uh, partner who's willing to fund my research, but then they require me, uh, as part of the funding, to not publish my results for a certain period of time or so forth, uh, am I able to waive my academic freedom in advance? I don't have any answers to these questions, but I think they're tough. Um, uh, next to you, Professor uh, McAuley, I'm, I'm wondering, given the sort of unique context of Quebec and what I would suggest is a, a, a different um, incentive to defend academic freedom, I mean, you talked a lot about wokeness and the, the incumbent Quebec government sort of viewing um, wokeness as an English Canada thing, and so um, I'm wondering how strongly do you believe that the debate going on in Quebec, is it is applicable to the rest of Canada because it's 
the, the reason for it, I would argue, is, is, is more, it's political. There's a political consideration. It's not a principled defense of academic freedom. It's seen as a, a bulwark against English Canada. So do you think that the, for example, if there's a situation in Quebec where, um, you know, the victim of, uh, of, a, of a mob is not as sympathetic, I'm thinking, for example, you may recall Andrew Potter at McGill. Uh, he was the head of an academic center there, and he made some comments that were unflattering, and he was chased out of the job. Um, there was no one jumping to his defense for academic freedom there. So I'm just wondering, is the, is the debate in Quebec so different that the, the, the relevance of it to the rest of the country is, just, is, is not that strong? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, clearly, there was what I described as a perfect storm uh, that led to the adoption of the act. Uh, and so the, but on the other hand, and, and so I'd, I'd be surprised if other provinces uh, jump on the legislative bandwagon and we start to, to, to see acts adopted in other provinces. Uh, that being said, clearly it's an issue in other provinces too. It's led to the, these directives by, for instance, in, in Ontario, the, the requirement that uh, universities adopt free speech policy, which by the way, uh, charter questions aside, seems to me to be uh, problematic given the, the recent decision of the Ontario Court of Appeal in the Canadian Federation of Students case, where, uh, if, if you recall, the, the, the uh, Prime Minister uh, or the Premier in, in Ontario uh, said that student associations were getting up to all kinds of Marxist nonsense uh, and so then required uh, students to be able to opt out of paying student association fees. And what the Court of Appeal said in that case was that the, the way the university acts are structured uh, in uh, Ontario is such that it, it doesn't allow the province to use its spending power to require specific policies to be adopted because that's the domain of the university, which is uh, quite interesting because we've been talking about individual academic freedom quite a bit, but there's a whole other aspect of academic freedom, which is institutional academic freedom. And that was a lot in tension in the discussions around the adoption of the Act in Quebec. Most of the rectors, principals, and other higher-ups of, of universities were saying, well, actually, by requiring uh, protection of the academic freedom of individual researchers or teachers, what you're doing is you're taking away the institutional freedom for us to determine what the scope of academic freedom is in our community. And so there's a, a tension there between the, the individual and collective or institution. I would agree that institutional autonomy and academic freedom are not the same thing, and it's a good idea to keep them uh, separate. But what I wanted to say is that um, I think that's kind of interesting uh, that uh, Quebec has gone the statutory route, because in Ontario and Alberta, uh, the compulsory free speech policies were initiated and imposed by government directives and not by statutory enactment. And so um, one of the things that was disappointing to me in Ontario was that the, the universities um, all, pretty much all, well, they all complied. There was a, a little bit of pushback here and there, but they all complied. And um, I think that when uh, it's a statutory enactment. It's a more aggressive form of intervention that might, might um, well, maybe it isn't, but it, can, it, it could lead a bit more naturally to a constitutional challenge, uh, which maybe wouldn't, be, wouldn't advance the interests of institutional autonomy or academic freedom, because who knows what the courts would do. But I think there are those differences to bear in mind. I would, I would just add, with respect to the uh, legislation in um, Ontario, I mean, I, I think it's hard not to be very skeptical about the motivations of the government, uh, which itself uh, is uh, a threat to academic freedom in some of its uh, conduct and some of, some of its responses to uh, lobby groups. And so when you have a government that uh, openly calls out student groups that it disagrees with um, and then uh, introduces legislation that is obviously designed to target a problem that may or may not be the problem, and that is the problem of so-called woke students. Um, I, th I think the government is engaging in a little bit of uh, PR um, and uh, vote uh, attraction as opposed to uh, sincere uh, and meaningful uh, promotion of freedom of expression. Um, 
Professor Bobber, you were talking um, in your remarks about uh, universities uh, tending to succumb to public pressure. Um, you cited the Hamline case specifically. And I guess my question is, I mean, is it reasonable to expect universities who trade a lot on their reputations, and we're living in a world now with social media where the pressure can be rapid, intense, um, and I think that's why you see them take a lot of these actions. It's sort of out of a panic and trying to sort of snuff it out before it becomes a problem. But then, as you also mentioned in the Hamlet case, there, um, there are now people sort of rushing to the defense. So do you think it's a matter of we just have to go through this exercise enough times and institutions will begin to develop a backbone and say, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to panic on the first day and fire people. We can actually ride this out. Or is there some other sort of uh, substantive change that needs to be made? Well, I think they need to be principled. Um, the, 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 yeah, Jamie says good luck, and I agree with her. Um, realistically, universities have always been susceptible to uh, pressure from outside interests, uh, especially powerful interests, donor interests. In fact, um, if you look at the history of academic freedom, uh, about 100 years ago is uh, when people like John Dewey and others stood up for against, against this kind of interference by wealthy donors in the, in, in the activities of universities. So in many ways, we, we haven't come very far from that. I mean, why did this university listen to a, a wealthy donor judge, uh, David Spiro, uh, in interfering with the hiring decision of the human rights uh, program at the University of Toronto's law school? because universities have always listened to wealthy uh, elites who have influence and who give money to their institutions. The, so the, the, the attempt to influence is not really uh, the surprising thing or is not even really the problem. It's what universities do about attempts to influence by outside uh, actors. That's one side of the reputational concern is universities care about their reputations because the reputation leads to donations and money is what makes universities function. But the other way that universities get money, the main way universities get money actually, is from student tuition. And um, student voice today is much stronger than it ever has been. And I think technology uh, has, has helped. Um, and so uh, this is the problem of the so-called woke students to the extent that that, it, that, that is a uh, con constituency that is uh, distorting uh, dealings in the university and is uh, driving university agendas. Um, then it's because universities care about how they look in the eyes of students because they're competing for scarce student bodies to attend them. It's, it's, just, it's a simple economic uh, uh, calculation. And so um, what we need is for universities to, to stand on principle and to stop doing, doing business with, uh, with matters that strike to the core of their, of their mission. Whether we can be hopeful that that will happen, I, unfortunately I share Jamie's uh, skepticism, but I think that the U of T story, the Harvard story recently, the Kennedy School of Government um, cancelled uh, an offer of a fellowship to Ken Roth, one of the world's most recognized uh, leaders in human rights activism, the, the longtime head of Human Rights Watch because of statements he made in, critical of Israel, and then reversed within a few days because of contrary public pressure and negative reputational impact of making a bad decision. And so I think it, we're gonna see this kind of contest playing out. Uh, and I think, Aaron, you're right. I think uh, ultimately there will be some, some sort of consensus reached through, uh, through that kind of uh, activism back and forth uh, to, to hopefully reach a good place where universities understand that the cost of making uh, bad decisions will impact their reputation uh, in, in the same way. There are a few incidents where the deans of schools uh, really do stand up for academic freedom. I mean, it's but but it, they're few and far between. But all I really wanted to say is that you wouldn't regard the government as a donor per se, but uh, the government holds a purse strings for the universities in a lot of the provinces. And again, to repeat, when the uh, Ford government. Uh, issued its directive to Ontario colleges and universities. It was very clear, because I just read it yesterday and had forgotten. They said there will be budget repercussions uh, immediately for any colleges or universities that do not comply with the policy. And to my mind, uh, it doesn't really matter so much. Well, I shouldn't say that. Nothing that untoward has come of it. Uh, the universities file their reports every year and you can look them up and so on. There hasn't been a lot of um, 
uh, enforcement or uh, activity under the directive. But the, the fact of the matter is that this degree of intervention with institutional governance and academic freedom did take place, and it was acquiesced in by the, um, by the institutions, probably in large part because of the threat. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and legal scholars committed to constitutionalism, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law. This week's episode was a special encore presentation from our National Law and Freedom Conference. This year's conference was sponsored by the National Post, Miller Thompson LLP, Baker and McKenzie LLP, LexisNexis Canada, Jordan Honickman Barristers, Castles, Brock and Blackwell LLP, and the McDonald Laurier Institute. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Our podcast sponsor is LexisNexis Canada. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more interviews with leading Canadian jurists and legal scholars. So long for now. Thank you.